All right, Tyrone, can you hear us? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, sir, we can. All right, we're cooking with grease now. All right, so so again, um, this is when men open up a show where we are redefining manhood through transparency. Those of you that are new, my name is Dominique Vine. And I'm Dexter Pagan. And we are about to, we are on our series, I'm a Man I Was Molested. And we have our, our guest uh, today, Mr. Tyrone, or you go by Tyrone or Melvin. Ty, but Ty. you can say Tyrone. That's Ty, 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 Ty. <laughs> so, um, Ty, first of all, we want to thank you. And um, before we begin, um, there is a trigger warning for um, everyone who's, who's new. Uh, we will be talking about molestation. Uh, we, may, we may be talking about um, rape and so forth. So just want to give that trigger warning. And if, if any of you all feel uncomfortable, uh, please just uh, stop um, reviewing the, the video. And um, Ty, if whenever you feel uncomfortable about sharing whatever um, or whatever question that is uh, probably um, insensitive or uncomfortable to you, please just let us know. But um, first of all, again, we'd like, we'd like to thank you. And please share some details about yourself first. And then we want you to um, go into your first experience um, with molestation. Okay. Uh, as you know, my name is Tyrone Melvin. I'm from Philadelphia. Uh, I am an outreach worker and a certified sexual assault counselor here at WAR, Philadelphia Center Against Sexual Violence. So I actually, uh, ironically, I work at a rape crisis center. Go figure. <laughs> awesome. And... Uh, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. So is there anything else you want to share about yourself or is, is, is that all? Uh, um, um, you know, no, we can kind of just hit on it. You know, I'm a survivor of sexual trauma, uh, like many other men. Uh, I'm an African-American male and, and typically we don't know how to ask for help. Uh, and it's been taught to us to not even see ourselves as victims which in itself is, you know, kind of oppressive <laughs> and a crime in, its, in itself. But uh, I, I'm the face, you know, I'm one of many. Uh, I'm the poster child, if you will, for men who have experienced sexual trauma. So, you know, with that being said, I give permission to anyone who have experienced sexual trauma to ask for help. You know, this, you know, I'm, I'm here for you. But, and I hope sharing my story helps someone. And I, I really want you to kind of go into it. Um, we may be jumping the gun, but um, can you first uh, share how your experience with being molested plays a role with, um, with you as a social worker and, and being a part of this organization? Uh, it can be triggering uh, because as an, as an advocate and a survivor myself, I... I'm out in the field a lot. Mm -hmm. So uh, with that being said, even when I'm doing my job, I get disclosures. Uh, and some of those disclosures can be overwhelming sometimes. Uh, I won't make pretend that no time that I'm not affected by it. You know, uh, I allow myself to have those feelings, those emotions, and then I try to process it, you know. Uh, so it's it's ongoing. It's ongoing. It's a it's a tough job, but you know, somebody's got to do it. Definitely. Hey, listen for everybody out there in the uh, viewing public. If you have any questions uh, for Mr. Melvin, uh, please feel free to put them in the comments section, and we will definitely 
uh, try to get to those and uh, make sure that he has an opportunity to answer those. And so and uh, please share the broadcast, by the way, as well. We want as many people as possible to see this and see what's going on because you never know if you do share the video, somebody else may have had a similar experience and they may want to share their story as well. Um, so we really want you all to do that for us as well. Go ahead. Sorry. No, you're fine. And so, you know, with that being said, Tyrone, uh, you know, can you, can you share with us um, your first experience or your experience with uh, molestation, uh, you know, what was the circumstances behind that? And, uh, you know, we'll go from there. Uh, my first experience as a, a survivor of sexual trauma started around six years old. Uh, it was it was from a family member. Uh, and, you know, thinking back now, I can kind of identify what that grooming process looked like because uh, it didn't start out immediately with a touch. It started out with her revealing her nakedness to me and appealing to my flesh, if you will. Uh, that happened, that happened a couple of times. And then it starting, you know, she started asking me to touch her. Uh, those touches eventually led to her touching me and then led to sex. Uh, and this went on for about 10 years. This went on from about six to 16, to be honest. Uh, and then that same time frame, uh, and I often forget this, and I, I have to learn to speak on this, I also experienced inappropriate touching from a male teacher uh, in that same uh, time frame. So I'm learning to say that out loud because that's still difficult for me as a man. Uh, and even though I'm an advocate, I still have those emotions where just that thought alone makes me uncomfortable to say that out loud. But, uh, you know, uh, sexual violence is sexual violence. So in my case, it happened from a male and a female. The female led to sex. The male perpetrator was just inappropriately touching. Wow. And, and this, uh, this female um, family member, uh, can you share the relation? Yeah, so it, 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 it was a cousin. Uh, and as I said, I had a lot of interaction with her uh, in that time. I spent a lot of time with her. So uh, every time I saw her, uh, from the time of the grooming process, eventually, as I said, it started with uh, touching, me touching her, you know, uh, the vagina area and experimenting, exploring that and playing with that. Uh, and eventually she started touching me. Uh, and creating that sensation in that relationship between myself and her. At some point it got normalized because it led to sex. So you, you mentioned a, a, a phrase, uh, and for those who might not be familiar with it, uh, the grooming process, can you explain what that is? So the grooming process is when a perpetrator takes a, a child, and this can happen even in adult relationships because any of us can be groomed in relationships. Uh, typically, uh, the grooming process looks like the perpetrator has access to the kid. They spend time with the kid, and, and in some cases, in my case, now that I'm thinking back, they start doing things for you, uh, luring you in uh, and creating the secrecy, you know, having that conversation that uh, this is between us, 
uh, there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing to you. And it gets normalized. Uh, after a while, you learn to believe the lie. And because you're vulnerable and you do get some sort of sensation out of it, you're okay with it. And you don't even realize that you're actually being groomed to be abused. So um, I, so a lot of questions um, popped in my head after you said that. So I first, I first want people to have an understanding on how did she have, you, you talked about access. How, why and how did she have so much access to you? Because she was a cousin. Okay. So I was always around her. And so when my mother wasn't around or when I was over uh, her house, what would happen is, you know, I'm a kid. I'm a little boy. She would walk around me naked. Well, I'm a little boy looking at a 16, 17-year-old walking around me naked. So that's going to appeal to me, to my flesh. And, of course, I would get excited over an extended period of time. And that happened for a while. And like I said, you know, she started touching herself uh, and then eventually started asking me to touch her, which, you know, I got some sensation out of it. And then she started touching me. And like I said, somewhere along the way, it led to intercourse. You know, uh, even when I think back, you know, I was kissing on various body parts, you know, uh, uh, all those little things as a six-year-old, you know, kissing the breast, kissing, you know, between her legs, uh, all those different things. You don't know that, again, I'm enjoying it, believe it or not, as a is a victim because I'm a little boy feeling like, oh, I'm getting some attention from an older female who happens to be my cousin. Uh, and I got, I got our, some pleasure out of that, sadly. Okay. But that's what that would typically look like. Whenever we encountered each other, she would disrobe and walk around naked and that would always lead to sex because that was the cue. Okay. Now you you expressed that your mother was always gone. Um, she was working. She was working. Okay. And so was she? Was your cousin a babysitter? Yes. Gotcha. She was. Sometimes she was babysitting, and sometimes I would just pop up over there. You know, because I spent a lot of time at various family members' house, so I would just get up and go over there, knowing I'm going to get a treat out of. And you said that this uh, spanned for about 10 years? Yeah, till I was about 16. So what what was the circumstances for it coming to an end? I think by then I was just sexually active. I didn't have, you know, it wasn't nothing she did wrong. I just had my choice of other women, specifically older women. You know, ironically, it started out with an older woman and that would continue on with older women. Women, older women seem to appeal to me and I seem to have appealed to them. So those are the situations I would find myself in. Uh, that being coupled with just having access to various girls in general. You know, at, at 15, you're sleeping with any and everything. You know, anybody that pays you attention. So if, if my math is right, so uh, that puts her probably uh, mid to late 20s. Um, did she ever come to the point and say, you know what, uh, I shouldn't be doing this or? No, she never, we never had that conversation. We had that conversation without exaggeration, probably 
almost 20 years ago, she picked up the phone and called me one day uh, and said, I needed to speak with you. And that's when she went on to share her story about her own trauma. Uh, and for those who don't know, uh, in most cases, most survivors of sexual abusers don't typically go on to abuse other people. That number might be about 3%, you know, but we're talking way back then. So I don't know what that percentage would have looked like, but she fell in that category as someone who was a survivor of sexual trauma and then turned around and perpetrated the behavior in itself. Right. And so, because we, we talked about this earlier, can you go more in depth with um, the trauma that she experienced? Uh, it was brought to my attention that uh, I believe it was her father and her uncle uh, was sexually assaulting her uh, at a very young age. And I think that was even happening when she was doing that to me. And so even when I think back now, uh, some of the guys she may have dated were much older than her. Uh, so that would be normal for her because that's what was happening to her. I don't know that they were all. All right, we're gonna try to get him back on. Yeah, so uh, once again, you know, as y'all have questions for uh, Tyrone, uh, please feel free to uh, add those questions and uh, we will definitely make a point to uh, bring those questions to his attention. Yeah, and if we're not able to get him on on the screen, we'll easily just pull him up um, on the phone and just get him on speakerphone. We'll just keep it going. Yeah. So give us a, uh, there you go. We'll try one more time. And once again, if there's any questions that you think we missed that you want us to ask, um, please let us know. So Tyrone, um, I'm sorry about that. I don't know which end it was on, but um, uh, just continue on where you left off. Uh, so as I said, you know, I noticed that there was a pattern when I think back of various men that she was sleeping with coming around. Some may have been in her age bracket. Some may have even been older. Uh, but she did share the story with me that uh, her abuse was directly related to, I believe, her father and an uncle sexually assaulting her. And I think there may have been somebody else, but I can't quite uh, remember who that person was. But it was a few people that were sexually assaulting her at the same time. Uh, you know, that, that brings up a question that I, I'm going to try to table that question uh, to a little bit later in this conversation. So I'll, I'll redirect by asking, um, at any point in time during this 10-year span, uh, were your parents uh, aware, your mother and father? Uh, okay. Well, my father was an absent father, so that, you know, so he wouldn't have known that. Uh, and my mother didn't know it because, like I said, at some point, I was able to get up on my own, even as a child, and just hop on a bus or a train and go see my cousin. Uh, if that's what I wanted to do. So there wasn't always situations where she was babysitting. Sometimes I would just go directly to her. You, you mentioned that uh, your experience with her kind of created the grounds for an attraction to older women. Uh, was there anything else that you can attribute to uh, the molestation to any other behaviors that you may have recognized within yourself? 
Oh, yeah, I was promiscuous. I had, uh, now I want to be clear that even though I experienced sexual trauma in that same time frame that I was being sexually assaulted by two separate people, but I was also experiencing emotional and physical abuse from, from my parents. So there was the emotional abuse from my mother, but there was the physical abuse from my father. And all this happened in the same time. So that led to me having some behavior issues, which I now recognize, uh, and even uh, inability to focus. I, I didn't focus real well. So for me, uh, escaping my trauma would be me going to school and daydreaming about, and this is going to sound funny, being one of the Jackson Fives. So that was my escape. And so I, uh, I couldn't retain a lot of information. And it didn't help that even when I would do my homework, that was difficult because I didn't have a patient mother. So if I got something wrong, I got criticized. So you have all these different dynamics going on. Uh, uh, I was a bully. I had anger issues. Uh, uh, I didn't even realize, uh, and, and probably until a year ago, that my panic attacks started somewhere around 12. So I had panic attacks as young as 12 years old, uh, and even bouts with depression. Uh, promiscuity was, you know, at the, at the top of the list. I had no value for my body, uh, none whatsoever. You know, if you, you, you paid me enough attention, uh, it's, it's just going to go down. I didn't really have to work hard for women. So they would find me and it would just go down. Uh, so I had no value for my own body, no more than I had value for their bodies. Uh, uh, depression. Uh, oh, gosh, what else? Poor coping skills. You know, so the, the list kind of goes on. And so even to date, I still struggle with anxiety and depression. The panic attacks, I don't really, I don't really have that, but I, I do struggle with the depression and the anxiety to date, which was a big factor then. Let, let me ask you this, and then I'll, I'll shift to, to let Dominique ask his next question. So, when you were uh, coming up in your, I guess now in your teenage years, were you able to attribute the behavioral issues to the fact that you're molested? Nah. Yeah. No, that wasn't a discussion we had like in those days, you know. Uh, unfortunately, in, in, in my community, uh, which is the African-American community, it was kind of normalized. Uh, if your homies found out you had sex with an older woman, that was praise. In fact, it was taught that you were an adult. You was introduced to sex. You're, you're a man now because you're doing that. Uh, so in my case, I was popular. So I think I had a lot of people around me that benefited from my being abused. So even when I was sleeping around, hanging with me was a benefit for them because they have access to girls. I've always had access to a lot of women, whether they were my age or much older. So uh, I, you know, I look back now and, and I can honestly say I was always in an abusive situation where someone was taking advantage of me. Right. You know, so I had no, rec you know, I, I didn't recognize myself as someone who was being uh, victimized sexually. Right. I got pleasure from it. And even when in your teenage years, um, you had older women um, going after you as, as well, correct? Yeah. And that was problematic. So we had a 
we had a TV show here in Philadelphia, to, which was a kind of combination of like American Bandstand and Soul Train. And so I was one of the their dancers. And so I was real popular. So imagine being a broke celebrity on TV <laughs> and having these fans. So what was crazy was older women, when you get your fan letters, some of the fan mail would be filled with inappropriate messaging letters or panties. Uh, you know, so uh, uh, again, it was always another level up of abuse for me. So that attracted women to me, uh, you know, so if I was their little access, their boy toy, whatever you want to call it, that's what I was. And I spent a great deal of time in my teens having sex with older women. Gotcha. Now I wanted to, um, and we may revisit it again, but I wanted to move to the experience with the male teacher. Uh, when did that experience begin? And how did Third grade. Third grade. So uh, it might have even been fourth grade. I think it was fourth grade. Uh, because I had behavior issues, I always found myself having to stay in class. And, you know, I, I don't, I'm, I'm probably a little older than you guys. So back then, you stay in class and you would have to write something in a composition book a hundred times. Like, you know, I won't do this. I won't do that. So I found myself in those situations quite often because I was, you know, I had uh, behavior issues. So uh, in those kind of settings, that's when the teacher would take advantage of me, you know? So when he was supposed to be teaching me something or correcting me, uh, correcting something or going over a, uh, I guess the subject, whatever I was, to, you know, struggling with, his hands would go on my lap, and he would, you know, start fondling me. Uh, uh, and and ironically, this same teacher uh, had access to me in a whole nother way. Uh, myself and two other brothers, I don't want to share their names. Uh, he used so this is what his grooming process looked like. He had a little money. He realized that we were fatherless child. So he would take us, we would spend the night over his house. Uh, he would take us to parks, movies. He had access to motorbikes. So he would use all those different things to kind of uh, get our attention and keep us excited. So uh, there was an incident and I think it may have happened two times where uh, myself and the two kids that I grew up with we would all sleep in the bed together. But I, I clearly remember waking up one time and finding the teacher behind me trying to remove my, my bottoms. And then I switched places. You know, I, I think I said something or whatnot, some, what, something or whatnot, uh, and I switched places. And I do remember him at some point during the morning that, you know, he, he tried to convince me that I, it was a dream, that it didn't happen. Uh, and I remember that like yesterday. Uh, and then it happened another time when I went over there. Uh, and the same thing happened. I repositioned myself. Uh, and at this time, he didn't acknowledge it as it being a dream. He didn't deny it. But what he did say was, don't tell anyone. Uh, and I can't remember if he threatened me or anything like that, to be honest. But I do remember him asking me not 
to say anything. Uh, I can't say whether or not how far he got with the other two brothers because we were all together. But I do remember at some point telling my mother I didn't want to go over there no more. And so I didn't. Okay. So your mother did know that you were spending the night over there. Yeah, yeah. He, he, yeah, but she didn't know about the, right. the, the incident. I never said anything. I just told her I didn't want to go over there. Not to my recollection, I don't remember saying anything. Okay. And so did this happen? You said um, it was in your third or fourth um, grade year. Uh, did this happen, um, you know, for several months um, throughout the whole what, with the With the male teacher? Right. So with the male teacher, I think we were probably only going over there a few months. So I know I checked out at some point, so I can only speak for myself. I may have gone over there a few times. Uh, I can't remember how many times. But once I noticed that he that, that pattern of him touching me, I just asked not to go over there anymore. So I, I think I may have gone over there a few times. How many times, I don't know, to be honest. Okay. But that... but. You know, even coming out of that situation and going back into the class, that was a consistent with him inappropriately touching me. Okay. So that night that you recall when um, he was behind you, um, was that the moment where you said, okay, this isn't right? Or did you have moments before then? When About when was... Yeah. I just knew it wasn't right. So in my head, it wasn't right. And then it was a man. So I wasn't going to respond to it the way I would have responded to a female. So if the situations were changed different, the dynamics were different, I probably would have slept with the female. But in my head, it's a man that didn't seem right. I don't or or even normal to me. Uh, and 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 again, I don't even know if I even tried to fight them off because, you know, I was aggressive even at that age because that's also around the same age that I was kind of started learning boxing from my father. Mm -hmm. So I may have even been aggressive in some sense, but I know uh, it happened at least two times. The attempt uh, happened at least twice. And, and with the, the teacher, was this something that you were unable to share with your, your parents as well? Or something that you did not share with your parents? I, I didn't share it because, again, I didn't have, uh, you don't know as a child that you're in a, uh, a dysfunctional relationship, uh, that you, you know, uh, I didn't have uh, nurturing parents, unfortunately. You know, me and my mom are real close now, but, you know, affection wasn't one of those things I get. She didn't know how to talk to me, so she talked at me. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't have felt safe to have that conversation with her because I was used to being blamed for everything else that went wrong anyway. So whether I did something or not, it was always my fault. Uh, and, and so you learn early on to not trust. So in that case, if my father did something to her, I look just like my father. I would get blamed for something he did to her. So I don't, I don't, I know that I didn't tell her because I didn't feel safe having that conversation with her. So these were secrets that I've held in, my entire life. Let me ask this. So, you know, with the, the instance with the teacher, with your cousin, um, I don't know if there's anything else, but um, how did these um, instances, how did this trauma, how did it impact your ability to have relationships, uh, you know, as you transition into adulthood? So I'm honest enough to say that it impacted my relationship a lot. Uh, 
it, it wasn't just a sexual abuse, it's the upbringing as well. So when you don't really have a loving connection to your own parents and you're suffering emotional, uh, physical, and sexual abuse, that impacts how you see the world. Uh, all my relationships, uh, mm -hmm. I believe, were abusive in some kind of sense. Not all of them, but uh, in some kind of sense because uh, I didn't trust people, so I had anger issues. Uh, I was easily startled or overwhelmed. Uh, if you got into my space too much, that that I would just shut down. So, you know, if I'm dating somebody who got a lot of kisses and hugs, what was normal to her was unnatural to me. That wasn't my love language. So her, I would easily be overwhelmed at times. Uh, it impacted my relationships in other ways where I could go sleep around and I would feel like trash or dirt. So after I sleep with this girl or woman, I would immediately go jump in the shower and try to scrub the filth off. I spent a lot of time, even in my uh, teens and even as an adult doing that. Uh, I would turn around and just blame myself for being stupid, not, you know, not knowing how to protect myself uh, or feeling dirty. Uh, I have intimacy issues, intimacy issues, meaning emotional connection, you know, so anything that looks like love, uh, would still overwhelm me. Uh, it impacted my marriage. I had a 20 year something marriage. Uh, you know, I, uh, now that I'm out of it and I look back as a divorced man, I attracted toxic, toxic, toxic relationships in my space. And that marriage was one of those situations where you're living in a lie, uh, and you mirror each other. You, you don't even know that's the energy that you're you're putting out why I may have been a, I was a serial cheater. I was a liar. I was manipulative. I didn't trust anyone. Uh, I was emotionally abusive. Uh, if I could even be physical, if I felt that you were getting too close or you touch me. So I didn't like anybody to touch me a certain way, male or female. If I felt that you were geared to hit me or do anything that resulted in me striking you first. Uh, because that was a form of aggression. I was used to both of my parents taking their aggression out on me. So I didn't, I didn't take too well to uh, anything that looks like aggression if I made them upset, even if it was my fault. You know, so typically they would probably provoke it a little bit more, put their hands on, you know, and women sometimes communicate with their hands. Well, to me, you're violating me. You, you're touching me and you're being aggressive. Uh, with me and you're talking to me. And so that impacted how I see the relationship. And even now, you know, I'm still single for the same reason. You know, I'm still doing the work. I still struggle with the depression and anxiety. I still struggle with getting close to people, uh, being vulnerable with people. Uh, and if, if I feel like I'm getting too close, I'll sabotage the relationship, you know, uh, I'm honest enough to say, you know, as a man, it impacts me where that shame sometimes comes into play. Now, and I'm doing the work on myself, but I don't pretend that the shame doesn't come up right. at times. I don't pretend that uh, there are days when my self-esteem is high, and then there's other days where I might not have no self-esteem and I feel like a failure, like I can't get anything right. Uh, and then those messages play in my head. You're never going to be this. You're never going to be that. You're just like your father. So all those things, you know, they play in my head. 
you know, so uh, it's a struggle to be me even when I'm doing the work, but I am doing the work. Uh, uh, I was dis I had disassociative behavior, so I didn't even allow myself to cry for years. Uh, I learned to cope because my relationship with my father was strictly abusive. So the only two contacts that I've had with my father was him taking me to boxing practice or showing up, excuse the expression, to beat my ass if I did something wrong and my mom calls him. And so imagine being 14, 15, 16, and the only time you see your father is at boxing practice or he's showing, showing up, and then he beats you to a pope, and then he parades you in public. So he makes you sit outside so everybody can see his work. You know, he was a cop, but he was also a former fighter and a trainer himself. So there was times that I would go to a dance show with injuries. I would have bruised ribs or something was hurting. And so you learn to ignore your own pain along the way. So that's what I would do. I would, dis I would disconnect and not allow myself to feel anything. And then it, somewhere along the way, it got normalized and it just, it's just how I coped. Can you go more in detail with um, you expressing that you was doing the work um, for the listeners? Can you go more in detail with um, specifically what what did that really look like for you? You mean doing the work? Yes. So for me, the work means recognizing that something is wrong, that something did happen to you, uh, and that uh, you know toxic masculinity makes it very difficult men to acknowledge that something happened to them that by saying something happened, you're somehow seen as weak, uh, soft, you're not a real man or any of these things. So I know what it was like to stuff all those things away for years. So as I started doing the work, I started realizing masculinity had nothing to do with the emotion. The emotions work the same, whether it be a male or female, when trauma is involved. Uh, as for me, I had to give myself permission to ask for help. And then I had to, I had to give myself permission to say out loud, something is wrong with me. I don't know what's wrong with me because I can't articulate everything. I just know something is wrong with me. Uh, so I started getting counseling. Uh, and I remember the first counselor that I had, uh, Dr. Barry, a, a good therapist, but one of the first things she noticed is that I didn't allow myself to feel anything. So if she asked me something that was a triggering question, if, a, if I even thought a tear was coming on, I would shut it off. Uh, and so I didn't get far with that first therapist because I wasn't ready to do the work at that time. Uh, and then eventually I joined a support uh, group at a church that I fellowship at, uh, Enon Tabernacle here in Philadelphia, which is a wonderful church. And they have a group that is geared toward survivors of sexual abuse. Uh, and, and a great friend of mine, R.G. Allen, who's also a trained sexual therapist, who's also like a big sister, was the one that really helped me process some things and look at myself uh, and, give, and gave me permission to kind of say, okay, you are not what you went through. This is what happened to you, but you don't have to define yourself by those things. So it's okay to ask for help and to get to help and, and, and to tap into those emotions, which are still difficult for me, even at 53, 
I'm doing the work. The, the thing I can say now is that if I'm not feeling well, I can say those things out loud. I'm not feeling right. Something is wrong with me. Uh, and so I'm able to pick up the phone and talk to someone else uh, who can help me. I'm, and then my line of work, I'm surrounded by wonderful people here at War Philadelphia Center Against Sexual Violence. And so we're all kind of, not all, the ones that I have the relationships with, I gave them permission to check in on me. So when they think something is going on with me, they check in on me and say, are you doing your self-care? You know, this is what I think you should be doing. You know, they give, they encourage me. Uh, and that's what I need. Uh, and then I'm part of a support group for men, uh, not specific to sexual trauma, but just it, we talk about everything, how toxic masculinity impacts us all as men. And any type of trauma, whether it's DV or SA sexual trauma, it just complicates things. So I try to put myself, I've learned to put myself in settings where I'm held accountable, uh, but that I can be vulnerable and that I can be safe around other men. And that's not easy. It's not easy. Yeah, you know, that, that was actually my question. I was going to ask you about your process, so I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, the question that I, I said I wanted to table so later. Um, so, you know, in your adulthood, um, you know, looking back at your experiences uh, and then having the conversation with your cousin, were you able to forgive her? And what got you to the point where you were able to, um, I guess, be, be open to the idea of forgiveness? So... I will honestly tell you that I did forgive her because she, you know, she made the call and she shared that with me. As for myself, I, I'm repeatedly forgiving myself. So there's days when I'm okay uh, and I'm feeling, I'm feeling strong. There's other days when I'm not okay and I have to rewire my mind to forgive myself daily because it is an ongoing thing it's just the mind is wired you know one of the things I tell people all the time when I'm doing panel discussions I wish I can tell you that this is just going to all end but I would be lying uh, you learn to live with the trauma and you learn to pick up tools uh, and develop healthier ways of coping uh, uh, which is what I've learned to do uh, but I am aware that I'm going to have triggers for the rest of my life whether it's a smell whether it's a taste, whether it's a place or a face, you know, there are certain things that just still trigger me and I have to find a way to uh, re-forgive myself and then have compassion on myself, you know, because that's something we don't know how to do as men. So this is a daily thing for me. I'm constantly showing myself uh compassion and forgiveness. It's not easy because I'm not always my best, you know, but I do allow myself to have those feelings no matter how uncomfortable it is. And I try to work through it. Uh, the one thing that I am trying to unlearn is uh, internalizing other people's stuff. So other people's stuff affects me. I take on that. So if you disclose something to me and it triggers me, it will bother me for a while, at least for a good 48 hours. I, I, I go through it like clockwork, particularly if I identify 
with something you said. Uh, and then I can, I, and then eventually I'll pray about it and let it go, you know, but it's, it's, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. You know, I will also tell you there are times when I'm not my best as a survivor, when I feel like I just want to give up. Suicide has been something I thought about from time to time because there's days where I'm just completely overwhelmed and I have a wealth of knowledge and I have too, but there are days where I can't take it. I can't forgive myself and I, I want to give up, but then I have to remember that that's just a feeling. I don't have to give in to that feeling. I don't have to give that permission. I can allow myself to have those thoughts but then I have to be accountable. I'm not just accountable to me. I'm accountable to my family, my kids, my grandkids. So when I remind myself of that, the selfish parts of me subside. And then I learn to take a breath and rewind and reprocess. How often are you having those feelings or those thoughts um, today? The, survive, uh, the suicide, that's far and few. That's far and few. But there, there are times when my anxiety level is a little bit higher, uh, it, and it could come out of nowhere. I may have not had a disclosure or any anything. It may just come out of nowhere. Uh, so then I have to be mindful. I have to remind myself that I have to be mindful of the music I listen to, the shows that I watch, the messaging, the conversations that I have, because they also can be triggers uh, to my behavior. And if I'm not careful, if I take on somebody else's stuff, that can put me in a real, real dark place. Uh, but the suicide thoughts, I haven't had them in a while. They come far and few. Okay. Now, there was something that was very, very important as you shared um, during, this, during this interview. Um, along with the therapy and the counseling that you received, you identified and expressed different forms of support. Um, outside of the therapy and the counseling. Um, how have that played a role in your healing process? Because sometimes we can we, we think that the healing process has to be so, um, we have to just do everything alone and, and it's, it's always just us, you know, seeking within ourselves and, and, and that's it. But how much of a role has it really played um, with having those groups and even, you know, giving those people permission to say, hey, look, you know, this is what I need from you. Uh, it's actually been very helpful. So, you know, I spent my whole life distrusting men and seeing men as enemies or, or somebody uh, that would be a threat to me because of the abuse I had with my father and because of the things that he instilled in my head. You know, when you're told that six-year-old, you're a pretty boy and that no, no son of mine is going to be a faggot. So, you know, if somebody sees you as soft, this is what you have to do. So, I had to unlearn all those different types of messaging, first and foremost, uh, and then realize everybody wasn't out to hurt me. Uh, as far as the support group, uh, it really started with me just sharing my story with just a few men or on Facebook, just being vulnerable and just, these are my feelings. So I would journal on Facebook. I would just write my thoughts down, uh, and then I would get that, you know, and I did it for me, nobody else. Uh, I would just simply write my thoughts down and then you get that feedback. Uh, usually the women were more supportive, but I noticed a pattern in the men. The men normally would not comment on the page, not all of them, 
but they would inbox me. I'm like, wow, you know, uh, thank you for saying that. These are my thoughts too, my feelings, man. I, you know, I don't want to look like a sucker if I comment on your page, et cetera, et cetera. So I noticed the pattern in that. And I remember being that guy feeling like I have to hide or put on this facade uh, to showcase my masculinity at all times. But once I noticed the pattern, I just also realized that there are a lot of men like myself who were out there hurting. So I just started talking to brothers one by one uh, and, and, and finding out that they were just as effed up as I was. But it felt good to talk to someone uh, in general so that they know they weren't by themselves. And then as I began to get tools, my conversation started changing, my approach started changing. My I became a little bit more nurturing because nurturing wasn't something that's natural to me particular. So I learned to be a little bit more nurturing, uh, especially when they were vulnerable. And I would, you know, just have this conversation, look, you know, look, I'm here for you if you're feeling this or that. And then I even learned to say, which was very uncomfortable because I didn't get hugs coming up. But I learned to say to brothers, you know, yo, if you need a hug, I'm here. I got you. Is it okay if I can give you a hug? Uh, and it, what was amazing was these grown men, these muscle-bound dudes, they would melt. And I was like, wow. But the funny thing was when I was giving them a hug, I realized I'm the one that needed a hug too. I didn't realize that until I started giving out hugs. And then they gave me hugs. And I was like, you know, I didn't have to announce terms like, and I'm sure you guys heard this, particularly in the black community. Oh, no homo before I hug you. Like all those, all those things that it's like you're, you're trying to announce your masculinity before you do something vulnerable. Like, so I didn't feel like I had to say anything, but I, I realized I was also secure in parts of my masculinity. So that wasn't something that even came in my mind. I just saw a brother that needed a hug. I grew up without hugs. So I knew I needed a hug and I hope the hug helped them. And so when I noticed the pattern, I started putting myself in those kind of safe spaces. And then I found a, a particular group that a good friend of mine, uh, Philip Roundtree, uh, a really good therapist, a really good brother here in Philadelphia is doing some wonderful, amazing things. And so his support group, it's just that brothers from all walks of life. It was started out as just mostly African American brothers just coming in, and he struggles as a therapist with depression and anxiety badly. But his thing was he announces it, so he came into the session saying, "Hey, this is how I'm feeling. I just want to put that out there, so you know, I, I may even need a hug from one of you brothers, even while I'm giving you some good word." Uh, and that for me sounded good, but it felt good. But then when I really looked around the room, a lot of us was just messed up. We didn't know how to, we didn't even know what self-care looked like for a, as a man. What does that look like for a man? We don't know what that is. Uh, and this is something I'm still practicing even as we speak. I mean, I'm always being encouraged. Ty, do some self-care. So uh, I'm learning these things. So for me, the group, has been very helpful and me identifying that it's not just me that's going through something, but it's a lot of other brothers out here or men in general that are just suffering in silence. And so we need a safe space 
where we can be vulnerable with each other and talk about this, you know? Uh, we're, we're coming down to uh, our closing, so we only have a few minutes left, and we want to give the opportunity if anybody out there has a question for uh, Tyrone, please feel free to uh, post your question, and then we'll try to get it to him uh, before we close out. Uh, I guess my last question for you, uh, Tyrone, is, um, you, you know, in your adulthood, uh, having gone through these experiences, going through your process and, you know, daily going through your process, have you had the opportunity to uh, have this conversation with your mother on the back end of all of this? And if so, what was her response to uh, everything that you had gone through? So I did have that conversation with my mother. Uh, but like certain family members, they don't know what to do with that information. Uh, and I had to learn to forgive her for that. And at some point I had to learn to be okay with that. Uh, I didn't get the response and the support that I wanted to. Uh, I did get the support. Uh, I did get to have a conversation with my father about what he did to me on his deathbed. Uh, and he apologized to me uh, for what he did, but it, it, it was funny because I still didn't understand what his story was like as a child until he passed away. And once he passed away, I heard all the horrific stories and then I understood why he did what he did. I, did, I learned to forgive him because he apologized and he asked me and he said to me, I know that I wasn't no good. I know that I wasn't a good father, but if I can give you any advice I would say to you, don't spend your entire life being angry and unforgiving. Learn to love people. He said, you're a better father to your kids than I've ever been. It's okay. You know, you, you know, I, I envy the way you are. And so for me, he just wrote out a, a million dollar check. Mm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, so I was able to have some closure, but that was just a short window because I was just getting to know him on his deathbed. So, you know, there's all that other stuff that comes up. But as far as my mother, uh, my mother loves me. She just doesn't have the tools to kind of nurture me with that kind of information. And so uh, I had to be okay with that. Uh, I love her to death. Our relationship is still great. But I, don't, I still don't get the I love you unless I tell you first. I don't get the hugs. So, you know, uh, I would like more. But I've learned to accept it just the way it is. And I, I just love her. I love her unconditionally. Uh, and I accept that she hasn't done the work. So I have to be okay with what she can't give me. But it does impact how I operate with women. So that's, a, you, you get what I'm saying? That's that still struggle. When you can't resolve one thing or have closure, you still have that other stuff. But I'm okay with what she can't give me. I have to be. Now, you, you highlighted something that's very, very big, and, you know, this is the, one of the many reasons why, we, why we're doing this. Um, first of all, people don't know how common this issue is, um, that stuff like this actually does happen, and a lot of parents don't know how often it ha happens in, in the household and, and among family members and so forth. Um, what would you want to say right now to parents um, regarding um, having with parents is first, I, I think all parents, when you have kids, I think you should all be somewhat trauma informed. Uh, 
you, there's a language that you shouldn't have with your kids when you're having a conversation with them about sexual assault, particularly in a black household. What we were guilty of saying is, tell me if somebody touched you, if they do this to you, this is what I'm going to do to them. And what happens is if that child gets victimized, uh, you've already set them up to not disclose to you because their first instinct is to protect the parent. So they're not going to tell you for fear that you're going to go out and hurt the perpetrator. So they will learn to suffer in silence. Uh, I would also uh, 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 say to parents, if you notice a change in behavior, uh, please believe the child when they say something happened to them. You know, one of the things I'll always tell parents is uh, sexual predators can look like anybody. They can look like me. They can be your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your grandfather, the pastor, the coach, the uncle, the person you think that's not the person of capable of doing that. It's probably the person that's doing that. So when someone says something to you, believe the child. Um, I would also encourage parents when they see a change in behavior, whatever you say to your kids, don't say what's wrong with you. They already feel like something is wrong with them. I would encourage parents to say what happened to you. Give them permission to feel safe in telling you something because when you say what's wrong with you, you have to remember as survivors, we already feel like something's wrong with us. For if you were anything like me, I felt crazy. I felt shame. I felt dirty. So on top of what other messaging you get. Uh, but I would also encourage parents to find a way to properly love your kid and nurture them. Be a support system. Uh, don't make their trauma about you. That's, uh, that's critical. Like uh, put yourself in their shoes uh, and be supportive and learn to listen uh, actively. Actively listen to what is being said to you from your kids uh, and, and, and then protect your kids. Don't put them in certain kind of situations in the story. Don't put your kids, everybody shouldn't be, everybody shouldn't have access to your kids. Let's just be clear about that. You know, uh, you should be teaching your kids uh, the proper terms for their body parts. That's a whole nother thing, particularly when they're young. Don't give their body parts nicknames. Tell them the accurate description of their body parts because if something happens to them and they go to court, well, that case could be potentially thrown out because the court don't recognize he touched my cookie. They, you, you get what I'm saying? It's important that these kids have the right terms uh, of all their body, body parts and uh, inappropriate touching. We have to start with ourselves as parents. There are certain places we shouldn't be touching our kids. And we also have to give our kids permission to not want to be bothered with us. If your kid said he doesn't want to kiss or hug, don't cross that boundary. Allow them to have that space. Kids have a right to set boundaries, even with parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles. Everybody should not be able to just do certain things to your kid because guess what? It gets normalized and then someone else comes along and does the exact same thing and the kid can't distinguish that something is wrong. Something wrong is happening to them. So those are, those are the things I would you know, just put out there. In my last question, I want you to um, share when should these conversations begin? Early, early. If your kid, I, I always say kids have learned behavior. 
So the minute you feel, uh, and it's, it's going to vary from parent to parent. But for me, I'm having the conversation with my grand. They're a little older, you know, but my youngest is five. So I have it, the conversation with them early on. But if they can articulate, start having those conversations with them. It's important. Stop assuming that kids don't understand. Kids have learned behavior, which is clearly why they can manipulate one parent against another, even at the age of two or three. <laughs> so don't assume that they don't understand. Have the conversation with them early on. Once you, If they start talking and they can understand something, start having those conversations with them about inappropriate touching, consent, boundaries, uh, and, 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 you know, uh, protecting their body parts and saying no. It's okay to say no. So someone's, um, and I think you, someone's asking, um, what about three years old? Three is fine. Three is fine. I mean, at three years old, we're exposing them to stuff anyway that they shouldn't. Exactly. At the time, you're sitting a three-year-old in front of t a television, and the television show is grooming them with certain things. And so you walk away to do whatever it is you do, but the television is grooming them and sending them messages. So if they can learn a messaging from watching a television show or a SpongeBob or anything else, you have to know that you can have that same conversation with the three-year-old about their body parts. Well, hey, uh, Tyrone, we greatly appreciate you coming on. I thank you for your transparency. Uh, thank you. There's a lot of courage to come on here and talk about the, the subject matter. And so we, we appreciate your, your vulnerability. And uh, we know that uh, what you shared today is going to help a lot of people. So, so really appreciate thank you. you sharing. Thank you. Thank yeah, man, really thank appreciate you, man. Anything else you want to share with everyone? No, I, I, my encouragement to the fellas, if you know someone uh, who's experienced trauma or you yourself have experienced trauma, now's a great time to ask for help and go get help. Uh, if you leave this trauma unresolved, it can lead to uh, various forms of uh, depression, anxiety, uh, mental illness, uh, drug addiction. I always tell people it can lead to eating disorders things we don't think about, all these things are components of trauma if left unresolved. Eating, eating disorder doesn't mean the person that's just skipping meals. It could also be the person that's overeating as a way of cope, uh, uh, coping and, and, and changing their body so no one else finds them attractive so they won't experience that abuse uh, uh, again. So uh, just pay attention to how people are talking. Pay attention to change in behavior and just be mindful of your own thoughts and feelings. If you don't feel safe, ask for help. You don't have to suffer alone. Uh, your masculinity is not tied to your emotions. That is not gender-based. It's normal to have certain kinds of emotion, male or female, or however you identify. These are all normal. And just keep in mind, if you did experience trauma, you're gonna have feelings for the, the victim who experienced same sex trauma. He may experience whether he feels like he's gay or not. Those thoughts are natural. It doesn't mean you are. So let's be clear about that. It just means you're questioning yourself because of the assault or the trauma. So those thoughts are natural, but you are not your experience. Just know that you are not those experiences and that you can overcome this uh, with help and support. 
uh, and I advocate for you. I encourage you. I'm here for you. You can reach out to me on Facebook. Uh, I say go find a safe space and heal. That's what. That's my advice to my fellas. And I and I do want to say this to the women who are dating men who have also experienced sexual trauma. Be mindful that your love language could be a way of violation to your mate sometimes. That's something we don't talk about. So don't make what's going on him about you. So when we hear things like, it's not me, it's not you, it's me. It's not you, it's him. He doesn't know how to articulate his feelings and or emotions because we haven't been taught to even recognize our emotions or something that's uh -huh. going on with us. So don't make it about you. Find a way to, to be informed about how his trauma could be impacting his behavior. That's how you can best support him uh, and help him develop best practices. Well, Tyrone, man, you just don't know. I, I mean, you probably have a clue, but, man, but you really help some people out. And once thank again, you. we really, really appreciate you sharing everything. Everyone else is thanking you right now. And uh, we're going to keep in contact with you. And once Please again, do. we really appreciate you um, joining the show. Thank you. You fellas be blessed and goodbye. And I'll talk to you guys mm -hmm. later. And thank you for having me on. I appreciate yes, that. Thank you, All sir. Right. You have a good, good one, man. You too. Bye-bye. All right, well, so, uh, you know, th that was uh, indeed a powerful episode, and, uh, and we, we appreciate uh, Tyrone for coming on and, and sharing with us today. Uh, we'll be uh, having uh, a few more of these uh, episodes uh, over the next couple of weeks, and so please feel free, if you have any questions, uh, to send them in our e inbox. Uh, we will definitely uh, make sure to get those uh, questions and comments directed towards the, the. This is one of the, the primary reasons that Dominique and I created When Men Open Up. We want to provide a platform where men can get on here and talk about issues that are, are difficult and uh, that we often struggle with talking about openly. Right. And so, uh, and one of the things that Dominique and I believed is that if we can model what transparency looks like, uh, that hopefully it will encourage other men to uh, start having these conversations. So thank you all for joining us. Thank you all for sharing this. And please continue to share this. Uh, as, as this message gets out, we really believe that it's gonna help a lot of people. Once again, share the broadcast. We really appreciate your love and support. And join us next week. We are out. Thank you so much.